I'm so excited to have composer James Newton Howard today to talk about his most recent film, the Paul Greengrass's film, News of the World. James, thank you so much for uh, joining today. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. Yeah, so, you know, like many of the films that have been coming out over the past year or even the past few weeks or months, we've had to kind of endure the realities of the pandemic kind of getting in the middle of the creative process. So was this was this film within your timeline of of, of that, of kind of putting a, a little wrench in, in the plan of how you were working on it? Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, right bullseye, right in the middle of it. We had uh, been working on the movie. I went out and met Paul in New Mexico in November of, what was that, eight of 19 mm -hmm. already. And uh, I still haven't met him again since. <laughs> but, uh, and I started working on the movie and then everybody shut down pretty much in March. And um, at that point, I had made a lot of progress with the movie, but there was still a long way to go. And Paul has still had issues with some of the score. And so we shut down for a couple of months. Everybody shut down, my studio, cutting room. So nothing, nothing was going on for a while. But when I came back, I really feel like I had a renewed energy source, um, which I think probably a lot of people did when they came back from mm -hmm. forced uh, retirement for two months. But uh, I kind of rewrote the whole score um, with Paul. Paul's collaboration made huge uh, progress and kind of finished it up in six weeks about after that. Yeah, well, for you, when when you obviously understand that, you know, the, the setting of the film, the environments, the world that the story takes place in, do you need inspiration? Do you need to go have reference points of, of tone or instrumentation? Because it's um, incredibly unique when it comes to this. I mean, it's not Americana, but it's it is America. And there's a certain tone and tone um, specific instrumentation that falls within this time period when this film takes place. So wh where did you look? Did you look? Do you need to look? Do you need the additional kind of direction initially? You know, I, I, always, I, I honestly don't think I do. Um, you know, I, I'm a believer Then people ask me, where do I get my inspiration? I, I don't get my inspiration from one isolated incident or one moment, I don't believe. I, I think it's a cumulative effect that everything we have experienced and who we are as a person at that particular point in time. I mean, I knew I didn't want to lather on huge amounts of banjo and acoustic guitar and fiddle, although some amount of it, um, there, it's almost like the audience and including myself, there's a subconscious or an unconscious expectation that there's going to be some of that music in the movie. And it certainly worked really well in places. Um, but as you pointed out early, the, the score is very quiet for the most part. And, and I give Paul Greengrass uh, at least 50 or 60, 68% credit on <laughs> for that because he was encouraging me through most of the, at least the first act and, and maybe halfway through the second act to be incredibly simple and um, although very targeted, we were very specific about where we made moves, but um, it was really kind of, a, it, it's working on you in a quiet way so that when the moments did arrive where the score could step out and be muscular, uh, maybe, maybe your ear was kind of ready for it. Yeah, that's, that's very true. Um, something that was very interesting to me is is your first cue, this one Captain Jefferson of, it's it's not the like, like what you're saying, like the really fast, like as if you're on a horse, you know, running through the open west. This is like a very patient, you set the tone from your first cue and I'd be curious of establishing um, 
maybe the tempos or just understanding that being restrained is kind of what plays into these characters of, of you know, Tom Hanks' character and the girls and, and just that it actually supports the story in a way because they're, it's a juxtaposition of, you know, just communication breakdowns and, and there's just like kind of a, there's a slowness to it of, of, of how the, the story and the characters kind of evolve. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you point that out. That was a, that was an elusive cue to get Paul's approval on. Um, I don't know. I think we, I wrote it 20 times, 20 or 24 times. Not radically different, but um, different. And um, I think that what we didn't want to do in that cue was was necessarily project. Um, sadness I think what, what I was trying to project is solitariness you know that this that his aloneness you know and I think that ultimately that's kind of what that that piece does it establishes a place it establishes the the intimacy of the environment where he reads the news it kind of establishes time a little bit with the instrumentation um, but it was you know it was hard fought I, I had to do that for I wrote that cue for <laughs> three months I don't know on and on oh, you know, wow. finally got it yeah so, yeah but thanks for oh yeah well it's interesting because um, I feel like when you get to arriving at Red River we then get to the energy of of you know we're returning to civilization we're we're coming back to kind of just modern day life and and that obviously you lean into what not what I think as we expect, but what fits with the time. So when you got to that point, like it's a, what's the, what's the instrument you're using in the very beginning? It's like a, a, an ambient kind of drone or it's a... Like, yeah, okay. I mean, there's a fair amount of, of electronics in the movie, in the score. And yeah. you know, there was some harmonic sound that, uh, you know, I have a couple of talented young people that work with me and really help <laughs> supply me with good sounds. So. That was <clears throat> one I latched on to. Um, and it has a sense of mystery in it, too. I liked playing the mystery, playing the girl in a slightly mysterious way, because she is a mysterious character. You know, he, he sees her staring off into the distance a number of times, and, you, you know, you're wondering what's going through her head. You know, is she thinking about, what's she thinking about? Where, where she? So it all kind of fit together, and then we just came in with a lot of Kind of traditional guitars and fiddles and banjo. Do you, I mean for um, do you write in for guitar? Because I know a lot of your stuff is done on in keys. But yeah, when you do write for guitar, what, what is that like for you then? I love writing for guitar. I've written yeah. guitar a hundred times, and um, I mean especially acoustic guitar. Writing for electric guitar is a little dodgy. Um, you got to be <laughs> careful. You don't sound like you're sixty nine. Yeah. Uh, um, I've done it successfully, um, I think, but. Um, yeah, I really enjoy the instrument. I I, uh, I have a I think I have a good sense of it. Um, it feels comfortable to me to write for those instruments. Um, uh, so yeah, I do whenever whenever it calls for it. I I enjoy writing for it. I just it's very easy to play guitar parts on the on the keyboard. Oh, interesting. Okay. Once in a while, the guitar player uh, will say, "Hey, this is this really is not easy to play." And I say, "I had no problem with it on the keyboard." <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's an ongoing joke with these guys, but yeah. So for yeah, I'd be curious about um, the spotting session for you when you have script and you see maybe a picture. And obviously, you've been on set, so you have a little sense of 
what you're dealing with here, but can you walk me through how you approach spotting and especially in a film like this where not every scene calls for music, but I mean, does Paul give you any direction or is it, does, do you have the first kind of opportunity to kind of identify those moments? Well, keep in mind that Paul was in England the whole time. I was here, um, uh, Billy Goldenberg, the editor, they were both in England. Um, Paul gave me a lot of direction. Um, um, and was very, you know, it's funny when I first heard the temp score, there was a lot of, a lot of stuff about it that I didn't like. And, um, I was somewhat critical about it to Paul one day and, um, which I look back at it now and thought that was kind of nervy of me to be, but I was still, <laughs> you know, I was complaining yeah. about some cue and I said something along the lines of, well, you know, I just don't want to do a lot of low tones. Mm. I think that was slightly offensive for Paul okay. <laughs> because he shot back. Uh, I don't think you're listening closely enough. Wow. Um, all right. Fair enough. Let me listen again. And sure enough, when I went back and listened, the moves that they made, there were a lot of low tones, but they were still, they were still very accurately in sync with um, uh, events in the scene, you know, so they were, and I just wasn't really paying attention to them as much. So when I went back and created my own sound, my own colors, I, I paid more attention to the things they were noting, the things they were ignoring. And consequently, the spotting did not change very much from the original score that I got. I added music in a number of places that they didn't have it, and that survived. Um, we took out some of the music. Originally, the, the whole uh, Dime Mountain shootout, mm -hmm. um, which was the first thing I started writing because I knew it was going to be very difficult. Um, that was originally 16 minutes long, uh, and uh, that got shortened. It's still nine minutes or nine minutes. I mean, yeah, it's still a long piece. It's a long piece, and um, I think they took out the music in a couple of spots, which when I saw the movie, I thought it was a good idea. Um, yeah. Yeah, I did. I, th I think, um, you know, I I think the mix is a good mix. I. You know, it's it's. I'm often complaining that the music's too soft. I'll complain more vociferously if it's too loud. That's the worst thing you can have. But I thought that they were really sensitive to building the score and what the music was supposed to be doing in the early parts of the movie, and then let it kind of burst forth in a more muscular way later on. Yeah, I love that you brought up this idea of you know when you give feedback to a director and there's a little pushback because both of you, you and Paul, both have a very successful careers and you know what you're doing, but yet it's your first time working together, so it's kind of like finding the communication paths and you know understanding each other. When you, what is your takeaway every time when you do work with? Are you excited? I mean, well, that's not the, that's not the question. Obviously, you're excited to work with new directors, but. What's kind of the trepidation or some of the things you've learned about working with new new collaborations, I guess? Well, you know, it's a it's a process. I think, as you say, um, Paul, Paul has a has a great deal of credibility with the movies that he's made. And he reminded me of that during that conversation, mm -hmm. <laughs> says, uh, which was great. He said, you know, I do have a point of view and you need to it's you know, you should listen to it and pay close attention to it for a while, which I did. And we became very close and we came, it was a total home run for both of us by we, but, but in the beginning, it's kind of a dance, isn't it? You're, it's like a, it's a first date, if you will, you know, you're, I'm not sure how much he wants, to, 
knows about me or wants from me um you're i'm afraid is he gonna do i do i give him a whole bunch of orchestral stuff early on which is not usually the style of his movie um do i am i writing this as a thematic thing do i how early do i present the music i'm a fast writer so i i have a tendency to kind of shower a director with tons of music early on and then i pay the price for that i have to go back and rewrite it many yeah. times but i don't mind that so much <clears throat> but you know you get to know each other it's um and you begin just yesterday paul was on i was on a zoom with paul and he said you know the biggest thing for him the number one thing for him is trust that you work with the people that <clears throat> are theoretically experts in their field and you need to trust them. Mm. Uh, I think we got to the point where he trusted me and I trusted him. So, yeah. How, how did we didn't have a chance to talk about it, but how did he first reach out to you? How did the relationship even begin? Well, he says that he's wanted to work with me for <laughs> a long time. And I chose to believe him and I certainly um, love Paul and, and would always want to work with him, but I never seriously thought about it because he was working consistently and so successfully with John Powell, who I have a lot of admiration for. Yeah. They did such great work together. Um, so it actually, the message came through Billy Goldenberg. Uh, they, they were, I'm sure he and Paul talked about it. Um, he called me up and said, you know, do you want to do a Western? And I said, yeah, of course. Every composer wants to do a Western. Um, yeah. It was just very simple. I flew out there, hung out with them for a day or two. Um, really enjoyed being there i usually don't like being on set because there's just nothing for me to do and you just the director is way too busy to talk to you but you know we were way out in the middle of nowhere in these high new mexico plains and it was just just beautiful and the thing i really noticed was what a happy set it was you know yeah. everybody was in a just it was a great vibe and uh, you really felt like they were having a great time out there with wagons and horses <laughs> The ghost of John Ford, and you know, it was really fun. Yeah. So, I mean, for you, do those, when you get back to your studio and you start writing, and you know, obviously, like you said, you rewrite quickly and you kind of get it, it all comes out. Um, what is what is exciting about just that first kind of moment of inspiration when you identify a theme or a melody that then you feel like this is like, when does it resonate to you that this is right? When do you know it sticks, even if you might have a bunch of material that you, you've produced? You know, I think when I write the right thing, um, I know in my mind uh, that it sticks, that, it, that it's working. Um, then the terrifying part comes when you play it for the director because uh, he or she may disagree that it's working. Um, but I know early on, I think I wrote the thematic, what we refer to as the hymn mm -hmm. um, in the movie. I, I think I wrote that early on, and that was direct inspiration from the way Paul shot those news reading scenes with Tom, where you really feel like it's a, it's a near religious experience, you know, that these people are, are so in need, and he has such a loving quality about him and a sympathetic quality about him that it just... It sort of brought forth this gospel piano idea. Um, and that happened really early, and Paul immediately loved that. Uh, other themes, he didn't, it took him a while to love. I mean, I think like going to Dallas, the traveling to Dallas, that whole thing, 
is one of my favorite moments because it got to be a big Western sound. And <laughs> I think he was a little shy of it at first because it was such a bold orchestral statement. And it was, um, I think he felt we earned it though by the time, by the time he accepted it, he, he, he liked it. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's great to listen to just the music, just the soundtrack, because like you're saying, like so much of the mix really plays into the experience for you, I imagine, of, of just, you, wrote, you write a piece of music and it can stand on its own, but then with just the environment of horses and there's a lot of background and bustle sometimes. Um, but like we were saying, like this film is, is quiet and it allows for music to be the emotion that sticks through. It's not about quick cuts or, like these in, intense action scenes. So, um, does does your sensibility change when you know that it's not going to be so much about what the sound team is doing? It's more about the the heavy lifting that you've been given. Well, I I, I don't know. I always feel like it's heavy lifting, you know, because um, you don't know how what the emphasis is going to be uh, when the mix comes along. So, you know, you're trying to make the the pieces of music you're writing substantive, but at the same time, you don't want to be taking up space and drawing attention to yourself. So, I mean, I, I would never just sit on a low note and let it kind of hang in there for 45 seconds through a, through a piece of film, but I would do something low, but I would be careful, careful to sound design it very carefully and have it be something more than just a low note. It would have texture and it would, um, it's in other words, it would be ready to come to the forefront if it were called upon because it wouldn't, it wouldn't be as something that's devoid of interest. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I treat every, I try and treat every cue uh, with the same Well, you can't. Some cues are <laughs> way more important, but I give them all credibility. Mm -hmm. for, for you, just knowing that this film was going to be, or that your score was going to be recorded at Abbey Road remotely, or at the point, I guess when you I, you knew that you weren't going to be able to travel there, does that change your relationship of, uh, I mean, I, I feel like all creatives have a, a certain sensibility of just uh, ultimate control. Every They know every note, they know every page, they know every movement that they really want to have um, land on the on the screen. So what, what was it like then to have to do your record remotely and did it, do you have to give up a little bit of the freedom of not being in the room with the musicians, be able to jump in and give them specific notes? Like, what was that like for you? Well, I, you know, I had done a lot of remote recording before, not with this size of an orchestra. Um, although it was a reduced orchestra, the Abbey Road, I think at that point had just recently opened and they would allow <clears throat> in Studio One, which as you probably know is, is an enormous room, um, can, hold up to 110, 120 people. And we, we were allowed 40, I think, something like that. Um, so there was an engineering challenge, you know, because everybody was socially distanced and the way that the room is mic'd really normally is um, has, to, has to do with the way the musicians are typically, which is right next to each other. And the sections are very clearly delineated and things were really spread out. But um, I think the engineering was really good. They, were, they made a quick adaptation the the score was not as you as you know was not a hugely complicated um million notes action sequence like a you know a, i don't know one of the big action movies that i've done so it was it was easier to balance even remotely we had a you know i was hearing exactly what they were hearing there, there was very little 
um, <clears throat> delay, and uh, it wasn't bad. And I think, I think it allowed, in some ways, you know, it was it was a better <laughs> better approach for this score because even though at the center of this score there were what we what Paul and I were calling our broken consort, which was mm-hmm. um, these ancient instruments, the cello di amore and viola da gamba and more gut-stringed instruments which sound which they played beautifully but have somehow a little bit of a more roughly hewn sound to them but even though that was the core the the surrounding traditional orchestra was a little smaller and so maybe you just got more personality from the musicians where, where did you yeah where did you find the instruments where do you go to find these these tones these sounds oh you know i it all start I started the time I really used them for the first time a lot was in a M Night movie After Earth, mm-hmm. which was a um, a movie that was not received well. And um, <clears throat> but I was I was really interested in that sound, and I I still think that's a good score, an interesting sounding score. I used I don't know I had twelve or fourteen of these uh, viola da gambas, and I think it's viola da gambas where they have sympathetic strings, mm-hmm. and the whole thing gets very buzzy and really good for tension and um, it wasn't a revelation but it was something I was aware of because I had samples of that kind of thing um, so I just thought it would it would give Paul a different sound to hold to hang on to instead of just the traditional sounding cello or right really clean and just kind of expected yeah very I don't know it's not Aaron Copeland but it definitely like you know there's a sound that I think um, that these instruments provide because the resonance like you're saying the just the the additional space that they fill is enough like it, it, there's enough character and enough information that we're pulling at it's it really cool to hear how you, you honed in on specific instruments in, in certain moments because just the vastness of the screen of the space being out alone and isolated is you know these instruments lean right into it I, I think yeah I was surprised I was expecting the big orchestrations or I mean there are some bigger moments but it seems like you're always coming back to those those two or three instruments throughout yeah i mean they they were so evocative and i felt that they they just fit that those two characters so well um it was hard not to you know but i was believe me i was i felt like uh you know a lion or something like lying in wait waiting for that opportunity to burst forth with a big french horn melody and i finally got one going to dallas you know we were able to put and um that was super gratifying to be able to do that. But you know, it was, it wasn't right to do it anywhere else. Just wasn't. Um, in fact, the, 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 I wanted to do less music really than there was a scene where I'm sure you'll remember where, uh, Joanna goes back to the house where her kidnapped from. And my original version of that scene was way more austere. It was, uh, I almost went out completely for the first, 30 seconds and I kind of liked the sound of just the wind and um, but Paul wanted more in there and so I that was that was I was I felt like I was treading on very delicate soil there because I didn't want to screw up the scene well it's a very ethereal and it, and it and it actually leans into just being with the girl and her perspective which I think once again that feels like that's a that's not an organic instrument that's is that a electronic synth there's both. Yeah. There's definitely that that same sort of haunting pad that that comes in up high, uh, but then it 
I think it's a small string in section with a solo cello. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it was uh, the guy, you know, Tim, and I can't remember his, but he's like first cellist with the London symphonies. He's amazing. He can play anything. And we, we had him play it once very espressivo with a lot of uh, left hand, as they say, which means vibrato. And then we had him do it less so. And then we had him do it completely dry and uh, uh, with no vibrato. And it turned out, I think that <clears throat> the one that really evoked the most feeling was the one that Paul liked. And um, I, I, I think I felt like I had earned it by then to do that. I, I was still nervous that I didn't that I didn't want to do too much well I mean the, the guitar comes in and then you introduce strings and it starts to build and support but there's still that solo guitar which to me that like that's all you need the emotion is 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 already ingrained in in the playing so I think it's super effective and it's a good it's a good reminder for for other composers of like just a very slow patient performance usually is is enough Mm -hmm. You're right. And, yeah. uh, you know, I have a tendency, well, I think everybody does perhaps, but, you know, it's very easy to overwrite in a mm -hmm. home score. And um, I'm sometimes, I'm just, I'll hear a score and I'll think, my God, they're not, they're not doing anything there. They're just like, <laughs> and, you know, and it works. And so I think, yeah, you have, you can't be afraid of, as what is it, uh, Nadia Boulanger said, don't avoid the obvious. So if the obvious solution is just holding one chord through the whole thing and it works, don't dismiss it just because you think you're not writing enough notes or something. I mean, mm -hmm. I, you know, this kind of thinking um, can enter into and poison one's thinking. Yeah, it's it's um, to me, I, I'm not I mean, I play guitar, but I don't I don't compose. I don't write. But yet the emotion to me. Um, is felt because it's a very personal, um, just a solo instrument, no matter whether it's, it's keys or a, sing, a string instrument, I, I always find myself being very interested about when you guys, when, when composers choose to go this route, which is usually, I mean, like the cello, when, you when it does get to the cello part in this cue, it's just like it changes. It's it's similar, but it changes, and it's a nice kind of moment to stick with the character. H how do you know when to extend it? Because this is once again another long cue. It's about five, over almost six minutes. When do you, when do you know you have enough? Is it really is that by dictated by picture or is it by feeling? I mean, when is the cue over? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Sometimes you just feel like it's never going to be over. Mm -hmm. uh, in in that case, I thought it was pretty pretty clear. Um, you know, she it starts. She gets off the wagon uh, without seemingly for no reason. Doesn't say anything to Tom, or I think even before that, she's kind of looking off, and the music kind of creeps in with her. Tom has no idea what she's doing. She walks away. He says, "Joanna, no, we got to go this way," and she keeps going. And I think at some point, shortly after that he gets it he understands oh my god we're back where she was kidnapped um and so that was the first kind of moment and then the mo and once you know that he knows what she's doing i think the score got a little richer there because now his his feelings are involved and then as she approaches the cabin i brought it down to just about nothing because i wanted to start a new chapter in there um and then when she exits the cabin uh he is just 
then then the then it's all about him in a way because he is just completely gobsmacked uh, that this girl has the strength her her ability to go and what how must that have been for her oh my god and then she almost reassures him you know she takes his hand and uh, just to say it's okay let's let's get out of here yeah it's interesting how when, when music actually plays the part of what dialogue might might actually do for the audience of yeah do you recognize that 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 you are the one who's responsible for connecting that yeah so that's called telling the story you know <laughs> and, um, it's very easy to be telling a different story than the director's telling <laughs> mm -hmm. and um, when that happens you know you, you get a kind of dissonance that doesn't always work um, sometimes you want to do that sometimes obviously there are situations where you want the, want the music to be misleading in some way to steer people away from what might be an obvious uh, uh, you know, idea or a conclusion about something. So, um, but yeah, I think a lot of most of most of one's job as a film composer is is telling the story. Yeah, it's it's really exciting to hear just the ebb and flow of the soundtrack because obviously when the film ends and and we kind of resolve the journey of of these two characters, you have an opportunity for like this jubilation of this Miss Joanna Kid track, which to me is it's a short cue, but it. Um, I think it's. It, I was expecting that cue to be like the opening cue, like this is a western. This is a you know. I think it, 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 a banjo or um, it just. But yet we kind of resolve like it's a reminder of we're still in this world and it's. It to me it's it's very. Um, I don't know it it, it 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 bookends it in a way that I feel like makes me feel like they're gonna be okay. It, it gives us the reassurance as an audience that. You know they're gonna survive after everything that they've been through well i think that was important to paul to communicate you know the reason reason he wanted to make this movie was uh the idea that you know uh resolution restitution healing whatever you want to call it is possible um that that people can find their place in the world even though you know everything is so screwed up and, and fractured and divided and i think it, it i think he couldn't have expected that, that that the movie would be so relevant to current events, but um, yeah. it really is in terms of, I think, a lot of the feelings that are expressed in that movie, I think a lot of people can relate to. Yeah. For you, um, go, going back to process in the early writing stages, are you an early in the day? Do you early riser, late at night? When, when do you find at this point in your career you're most productive? I'm not an, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm usually writing by about nine, but somewhere between nine and 10 in the morning. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'll write usually till five or six. Um, there's a lunch break in there, right? There's a lunch, <laughs> 10 minute lunch break. We don't, we don't spend a lot of time at lunch. Sometimes there's a uh, ping pong breaks, mm -hmm. ping pong enthusiasts. Um, sometimes they're Judge Judy breaks, which I, I love Judge Judy. I'll go lay on my couch and watch an episode. Okay. But, uh, you know, I, I, when I'm in the middle of it, when I'm in the thick of it, I can go pretty hard for seven or eight hours straight. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I, I don't do very well working at night anymore. I'm too old. So <laughs> it's not, I can't do it, but I, yeah. can, I can work anytime in the morning. What do you need around you then? What what are your what are, what are some of the first things that you grab 
when you need to start from scratch, what is your go your first go to? Where do you go? Piano. You know, I mean, I I usually have a piano sound that I when I walk in, I just turn it on and start playing. And I'm thinking about what I want to do. And then then when I settle on what I want to think about trying to write, oftentimes I'll go to strings. Um and sometimes short strings, sometimes just a different articulation of the strings, sometimes big, long held notes. And I'm basically improvising, uh, improvising into my sequencer. And, yeah. you know, I think, I think the skill comes when you, when you learn and you become better at recognizing when you've improvised something worth repeating. And, um, that's what writing is to me is, 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 most of the time that happens without the movie on. I, I don't like to do my early writing to the movie at all. Mm. Uh, I like to just write, accumulate musical ideas and thematic ideas and little motifs and little synth sounds and kind of collect a, a little toolkit, a palette, if you will. But, you know, I start off usually with piano or, or strings. And, uh, yeah, usually it comes pretty quickly. What, what do you appreciate? Oh, I was gonna ask what, what do you appreciate about in terms of uh, the technology and some of the tools that you have at your disposal versus what you had earlier earlier on in your career? You know, things that weren't possible in the '80s and '90s when it came to computers and the technology that we obviously live through now. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, it's way easier. Um, you know, in the very beginning, I I I didn't have a sequencer at all. I, I was using a Lin 9000. I think it was a drum machine. There was no MIDI did not exist, um, which is one keyboard can control multi keyboards. So you could have all kinds of different sounds at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, we were working on three quarter inch video instead of <laughs> uh, just a quick time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so you, there was a lot of, it was a lot more physical. You were recording on two inch 24 track tape. Um, you had to rewind and to put up an, every new cue would take like, you know, 15 minutes. You had to load up the tape. You had to get the, all the console was, I had all kinds of tapes with marks all over it, like which cue that is. And it was very time consuming. So I think everything that's happened in the, in the, um, <clears throat> in the tech, technology world, as far as filmmaking, this goes with editing too. I'm sure any editor would agree has all been in the cause of, faster mm -hmm. and you know the fact now that they can recut and restructure a movie in an hour where it used to have to be cut you know on a on a whatchamacallit i even forgot the name of the thing uh, avid or no not an avid uh anyway i'll think of it later but <laughs> yeah you know they're physically using a razor blade can you remember the name of it oh like like a steinbeck or a... well not moviola it's after moviola uh, <laughs> anyway it was you know the guy sitting there with tape around his neck and he's of course yeah and putting it together and um I'll, I'll think of it later but so and i think that's that's great i mean in terms of capturing ideas it's really wonderful unfortunately the technology is so powerful that for me i sometimes wonder if i've lost something because i want to i, I want to try not to be limited by what my samples can do if you know what i mean mm -hmm. um so if i'm if I'm doing a demo of a score and there, there are a bunch of really fast runs that need to happen, um, would I have been more interesting as a composer if I had just sketched them as, 
thirty-second uh, notes with groups of six, or da da da, instead of just like playing something that works with my string sound. It's hard to explain, but I think that you can the, the technology can have a uh, uh, an, a negative impact on your composing. I think if if you if you saw yourself going in one direction, you find yourself maybe abandoning that pencil to paper as much. And I think something does get lost there. Mm -hmm. um, but the good part is I'm five times faster. So, you know, because now we have to rewrite. You're rewriting right up to the day of your composing. Or composing, yeah. yeah. And oftentimes you're getting new picture while you're recording. So it's just the way it is now. Yeah. Um, if you could tell yourself... James, the composer, you know, five, 10, 15 years ago, uh, some, a tip or a feedback or something to be aware of, something that you now have the perspective on. What, what do you think that would be? What, what would you tell your younger self? You know, I think I would tell my younger self the same thing about everything, which is don't you know, men, spe men spend entire lives worrying about things, some of which actually happen. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I worry a lot that um, what I'm writing is not is crap. Uh, sometimes I worry that I'm not going to finish in time. I, um, you know, when I did the, the first Batman movie with Hans, we had such a we had such a different perspective. I am such a good student, you know. <laughs> Hans is, is is his own kind of chaotic way of getting things done, but it clearly gets done and gets done brilliantly. But I remember this was on a Thursday. We were in London and we were starting to record on Monday. And at four days, so this is four days before we start recording. I said to Hans, kind of panicky, Hans. We haven't sent one cue to the orchestrators yet. I mean, we don't have, there's, we're not going to have any music on the stage for God's sake. Mm -hmm. And he kind of looked at me and he said, well, uh, what day is it? And I said, today's Thursday. I said, we start recording on Monday. And he said, we have plenty of time. And, you know, he was right. It all got done and um, it will all get done. So I think, I don't know. I think I, th I think one thing I'll credit myself with is I think I've always done the best I can at whatever given time that I've been in. I, I've acquired more skill, more confidence, perhaps. Um, although I hear some of the stuff I've written, I wrote when I was younger, and I, it has a different kind of energy that I may not be able to reproduce these days. I don't know. Sometimes I'm impressed by it occasionally. <laughs> Other times I'm very depressed when I listen to older things so um yeah i don't know if i would do it much differently I, i've always felt like it's been a <clears throat> incredible gift you know just to be able to do this yeah the, the life of a composer is so unique it's not like any other type of musical endeavor when it comes to just the unexpected nature of not knowing what your next, pro next project your next collaboration that's why it's exciting to see that you've continued to collaborate with other directors and a lot of the things you bring up are things that I hear from composers who are just starting their career, that those things never go away of the uncertainty of yourself, of the story of, yeah, it's, it's reassuring. You know, you, when you write, as I have often done, um, four or six hours of music a year, <laughs> uh, 
it becomes very perilous in terms of just repeating yourself. And um, so, of course, one of the things I'm always happiest about is when I have a moment where it doesn't sound like me, because I'm always trying to not sound like me to a certain extent, even though they hire me because I sound like me. And so sometimes there can be a disagreement between what I want to do and what the director wants to hear. And I would say inevitably, some of the moments of that can sound like composing breakthroughs to me are often singled out by the director as being something that he doesn't like. That's weird there. That sticks out. Or so you know, you look at. I always think of poor Tom Newman, who I like very much. I think he's a great composer. Yeah, but he was just saddled with hammered dulcimer for so long, and you know, every score you want to have that sound that you had in American Beauty, or you know. And I know that it was frustrating for him. And um, so that, that's just a hazard of the trade. And I mean, I think in all fairness, John Williams sounds like John Williams. And um, uh, so what are you going to do? You do? Do the best you can. Try and be, stay original and fresh as, as best you can. So lastly, what, what is the one type of, because this is, I guess, if we go back to Wyatt Earp, was your last Western uh, and you've now done another Western now what, what's another genre or just story that you have yet to tell through your music that you're you're still excited about trying out you know I can't say that there is one I mean I I'm excited by all of them it, there's no such thing as saying I've done one of everything <laughs> because every bloody movie is a different thing it's a different um, hybrid. It, it needs a di the the task is finding the tone that is unique to that movie, and if you do that, you've succeeded. But you know, I would do big David Lean <laughs> outdoor <laughs> adventures forever. That's what I really love. Um, mm -hmm. You know, big thematic opportunities, beautiful canvases, um, complicated emotional stories, beautiful women. I always liked scoring beautiful women. That's fun. You kind of fall in love with them a little bit. Um, then you hope, you hope that they've noticed the music, and of course they haven't. When they, when they meet you at the premieres, oh, oh, how are you? And then you know next. But I have fantasies that they're lying in bed listening to my love theme and thinking, oh, that must have been written by an amazing, incredible man. Absolutely, yeah. It's it's. Um... It's incredible just to think about the course of one's career because I feel like many people in the music industry, whether they're an engineer, a producer, or a composer, they never really retire. We just kind of stop writing or we stop producing work. For, for you, what is your relationship to your profession, to your work? It, it, obviously, I don't, I mean, it's, it is work at some point when you have deadlines, but how, how, how would you maybe look at your, your job? Uh, of what's relationship to James, the composer? Mm, well, first of all, I have to tell you that composers don't retire, they just decompose. <laughs> um, what is my, you mean, how do I see myself as a working composer uh, going forward? More, even more so, what, what is, because, a lot of times, you know, we associate the work that we do with filmmaking and this creative work. It, it's play. We have an opportunity to, you know, play in the sandbox. And we just got, we were the lucky ones who were able to be able to do this type of work. 
um, you know, I'm, I'm really just curious about where, where do you, where do you feel you want to continue to go? And what, what are the things that continue to drive you to, to, you know, support your own creative endeavors? I'm, you know, I've been lucky to get a few commissions in the last few years for concert music, um, which has really been good for my composing, I think, because, uh, you know, concert music requires a lot more time. Uh, you need to carve out. I, you know, I wrote a violin concerto a few years ago, which I think put together took me a year to write. Um, I kept having to come back to it because a movie would come along. So I'm, I'm very interested in concert music. I'm very interested in performing. Um, I'm doing an album now. I made a three album deal at Sony Masterworks for uh, three, three albums, and I'd like to tour the first album. Um, which is kind of all written and ready to go. We're just waiting for the opportunity to record it. Mm -hmm. um, it'll be using a smallish, more chamber size orchestra. Um, and I'll play piano a lot in it. And um, so I, I think playing the piano is something I'd like to get back into uh, more. I mean, I've always played the piano, but um, <laughs> I just had my carpal tunnel fixed in my right hand. So, and it feels great. So I'm kind of. <laughs> uh, move forward but you know I, I guess performance and if i'm lucky enough to keep getting movies to score that's fine with me i was just looking at your slate of uh, upcoming productions it doesn't look like you're gonna have much of a break for a little bit which is it's great when you can't necessarily you don't have, you don't have to leave your house you don't have to leave your studio it it's gonna be uh yeah it's gonna be it looks like a productive future here and i'm really excited just to for more people to check out this film i feel like News of the World is unique because, you know, when I, when I saw that Paul was the director, I was expecting, you know, is it Jason Bourne meets a Western? No, not not at all. I mean, it's, it's we're returning to what Tom Hanks does well, which is, hold, you know, hold the screen. He, he, he is enough and the girl is enough. And it's really, I'm so happy to have a chance to talk with you about this film. And um, looks like the it was released theatrically on December 25th. It's available on PVOD and um, it will be on, internationally on Netflix. So... James, thank you so much for your time. And yeah, really, really excited to finally connect. Thank you. It's been nice talking to you. Good luck with everything. Thank you guys so much for watching. If you enjoyed today's discussion, please feel free to subscribe to our audio podcast and YouTube channel where you can find out about more upcoming topics and shows and projects that we'll be covering throughout the year. And if you like audio and you like podcasts, then I think you should check out the Audio Podcast Alliance. The goal behind the Audio Podcast Alliance is to help bring more great sound stories out into the community. So definitely check out some of these shows, subscribe, and you can find out more information about some of the great stories being created about sound. <laughs>